I'm Susan Brown. I'm Michaela Joy O'Shea. And I'm Jay Yee. You're listening to Beyond the Fog Radio. Our podcast about the untold stories of San Francisco's long history from the people that have helped shape it. Whether you're new to San Francisco or have lived here your entire life, join us as we share the stories of our city by the bay. Welcome to Beyond the Fog Radio. We are currently on a break, but we are out recording new episodes to bring to you. And while we're doing this, we have decided to pick some of our most favorite episodes to re-release. One of those episodes is with Zoe Elton, who we spoke with in Jack London Square all about the film industry in San Francisco. And man, did we learn some really fascinating facts that day, right? Oh man, yes, we did. Susan, what was your favorite part of this interview? So what I love about this interview is that Zoe, being director of the Mill Valley Film Festival for the last 30 plus years, really is able to shape what the film community is in San Francisco. And it's way stronger and way bigger than you would imagine. Because we're so close to LA, you always think film is made in LA, but it's not necessarily true. Film is also made here in San Francisco. And Zoe does a fantastic job telling us why and how that came to be. Yeah, and I was especially excited because, Susan, you and I both have film backgrounds, so it was interesting to learn a little bit about local scenes. Uh, Because, again, sometimes they just get swept under the rug. I'm right there with you. I don't necessarily, didn't work in film, but I studied it in college, and I'm a huge super fan. And learning about how the Bay Area is pretty quintessential in a lot of the film movements. I mean, Star Wars, hello, George Lucas is here. (laughs) You know, it it was was a great interview. So I'm really happy that we're able to share this with everybody and promote film festivals in the area. Absolutely. Well, take a listen to our interview with the director of the Mill Valley Film Festival, Zoe Elton. The Mill Valley Film Festival began in 1977 by Mark Fiskin. It is an 11-day event and well attended by the Bay Area community as well as celebrity film professionals. It is not far off from the likes of Sundance, San Francisco Film Festival, and the New York Film Festival. It's part of the circuit that a lot of people attend. Most importantly, the Mill Valley Film Festival has the reputation of pre-selecting award-winning films. They have a knack for choosing a film that then turns around and gets nominated for an Oscar or a Golden Globe. What was once a three-day local film festival is now an international film festival, welcoming over 200 filmmakers and representing over 50 countries each year. Within the last few years, the Mill Valley Film Festival began an initiative called Mind the Gap, where over 50% of the films shown at the festival are directed and produced by women. In September of 2021, 
Susan, Jay, and I had the pleasure of meeting Zoe Elton, who has been the program director for the Mill Valley Film Festival for the past 40 years. I'm Zoe Elton, and I am the director of programming for Mill Valley Film Festival, where I've worked for many years. I have a background in writing and theater, and uh, as a film curator, I've done a lot of work with things like gender equity. So we started Wonderful. an initiative at Mill Valley in 2015 called Mind the Gap, which is about the gender gap and how that shakes down in Hollywood mostly and in the film industry in general. That's my thumbnail sketch of introduction. And Mind the Gap sounds very significant to you and your amazing accent, maybe where you're from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, credit to one of my co-workers who suggested the name. But yes, yeah. the, the name obviously is a British pun, you know, <laughs> related in the underground in England, where as you get off the train, it's a mind the gap. Mind the gap. <laughs> yeah. Where in England are you from? Um, originally from Hereford, which is in the west of England, near to the Welsh border, known for apples, known for those white-faced cows that we called Herefords in America. But yeah, that's where I'm from. Uh, and then I lived in London. I went to drama school in London. So I was living in Northwest London for, you know, my time in college and the time I spent working in London afterwards. Yeah. My mother's from um, Somerset. Oh, Somerset is beautiful. Which is also apple cider. It, yeah, I was going to yeah, cider. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, they call both in Somerset and Herefordshire, they make really wonderful cider, apple cider um, and hard cider in Herefordshire is called Tanglefoot because it's very tempting to drink and drink and drink. And then when you stand up, you cannot. Yeah. Your, Your foot's feet tangled. are tangled. Yeah, because yeah. it doesn't taste like alcohol. It just tastes yeah. delicious. Oh, that's like so cider. funny. That's yeah. so funny. Yeah. <laughs> so what brought, what, what brought you to the United States? I thought I would come to the United States for a year, hitchhike from coast to coast, and then go back to England. And of course, before I came, somebody said to me, Zoe, you have to realize that the distance between the West Coast and the East Coast is around the same as the distance between London and Moscow, <laughs> which of course <laughs> it is. Yeah. yeah. So I came and then through, you know, through God knows what kind of set of circumstances ended up staying, you know, I... It, I, I still haven't done the cross-country trip. I did land in New York and I went up to Canada for a little bit and then came to the San Francisco Bay Area where I had some friends. And in this sort of extraordinary set of circumstances, I, I arrived in San Francisco Labor Day weekend. It was foggy. I had no idea about the San Francisco fog. And... Um, the friend that I was traveling with and I also had no idea where we were going to stay that night. And the bus from the, the airport dropped us off in the Tenderloin. Oh. And oh. we ended up staying at the Tenderloin YMCA Hotel. Oh, my oh, God. Wow. Which was pretty much the same as, you know, I mean, it's on, I think, I don't know, Turk or Eddie or, not, you know, right. Real, no, down right there, in the heart. Right in the heart of the heartbeat of San Francisco, essentially. <laughs> wow. And uh, I woke up the next morning. We woke up the next morning and thought, oh, we're leaving. We're going to Los Angeles. But phoned a friend who said, no, my mum's friend is having a brunch today for Labor Day. Come on over. And at that brunch, I met people who led me to theater work that I did, to uh, the, somebody I met there ultimately asked me a, a 
I don't know, a year or so later, do you want to work for a film festival? That was when the Mill Valley Film Festival was being founded. I met Noli, I met Noli that, that mutual day? friend. Well, I think it was that day or I'd heard about him okay. that day. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, the uh, yeah. Longer story, which is yeah. maybe not so public. Right. But on that day, I met a whole bunch of people who have, who are still friends and who basically led me and my friend to relationships, both personal and professional. I, you know, I, I mean, if I, I could track back about three different jobs to that one day wow. that I ended up having. And that was your second day in San Francisco? Yeah. I mean, it was just, you know, like the the gods were saying, hey, you're going to be here for a while. Yeah. You know, and uh, we met Roberta that that day. You you know Roberta, Susan. Roberta's here now? Yes, yeah, yeah. You do, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it it just was this portal into what became the essentialness of being here. And uh, Sue and I had both both came from a theatre background. We'd met in drama school in London. And, you know, coming out of that, I, it, you know, I began this really sort of multifarious career here, doing theater, writing and directing theater, getting involved with the Mill Valley Film Festival when it first started, and, you know, discovering San Francisco. I lived in San Francisco for 20, 25 years, and then I moved over to Oakland. So, you know, like many people in the San Francisco Bay Area, I wasn't born here, and I'm always amazed when people were actually born in San Francisco. But These two. Yeah, These both of you were born in San Francisco. Yeah, I was pretty sure you were. Yeah. 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 Jay's also born in San Francisco. Yes. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. So that was how I landed. That's the long the longer version of how I landed here. Wow. Yeah. So then and so then you were working for the Mill Valley Film Festival. So tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, it was it was I mean, literally somebody I met on that first day, a while later, by the you know, by the time I was obviously staying here for longer than I thought, said, you know, basically, these friends of mine are starting a film festival. Are you interested in working with them? So I, you know, I went with my English accent, which is always a help, and met Mark Fishkin and Lois Cole and Rita Cahill, who were founding the festival. And Mark, you know, the other two were still doing their day jobs. And Mark was, you know, got a little office in Mill Valley. And I started, you know, doing a little bit of everything, actually, for Mill Valley. And then, you know, the first film festival happened. And then after that first festival, one of my, one of the other guys who'd worked with us there, Richard Jett, said, hey, why don't we, why don't we, why don't we take up the video thing? Because we'd shown video in that first year. So he and I started the Video Fest, which was sort of a sidebar for the Mill Valley Film Festival, and started showing video work, both, you know, documentaries and short films, video art, that time, which was the early 80s. And that meant that Mill Valley Film Festival was, I think, probably the first film festival in America and definitely one of the first film festivals in the world to include video in Mm. their programming because, you know, it tended to be that celluloid was the thing and, you know, and video was not the thing. In 1981, MTV, music television, came out and the idea of using video as art was considered a new medium. And that idea exploded. Early on, I tried to get the art critic from 
the San Francisco Chronicle to review some of the video art that we were showing. And he said, oh, no, that's not a fine art. I'm not going to review that. That has changed, you know. So, I mean, that's how early we were to the game. But the other thing that was really cool about that was that as we started showing video, we would get people who are working with Francis Ford Coppola on what they were then calling electronic cinema. And we would do these panels on, you know, where this was going. You know, Francis Coppola was saying, you know, there will be a time in the future where a little girl who's 14 will be able to pick up a camera and make her own film. And of course, look where we're at now. Yeah. So, the, you know, if you were to look back through the history of what we did at Mill Valley, it's tracked that history of the evolution of film from being... 35 millimeter, 16 millimeter, 8 millimeter celluloid into digital cinema, which is what, what, it, what it is now. Yeah. You know, so fast forward to now and take a huge leap of imagination and you have a Mill Valley Film Festival this year in 2021 that is both screening in theaters and online. I mean, look at that evolution. It's yeah. extraordinary. That is, that's, it is extraordinary. Yeah. That's amazing. So tell me... I mean, you, it sounds like you did this. How did you? Yeah, right. Completely responsible for the whole thing. How did you know, Zoe? I mean, so so you have a theater background from London. Yeah. And is that in acting, or is it in film production, or what? No, what? theater background okay. in live theater as a writer and director. As a director. Yeah. Right. So really, the thing that always got me about you know about being a curator in film and video is really the creative process, and you know that definitely was driving a lot of you know the things that I've been interested in all that time. But in terms of your question about, you know, where that came from, it was happening in real time. You know, the truth is, it's like everything that we were doing, I mean, definitely it was radical for a film festival to incorporate video when we did, but it was what was happening in real time. And sometimes I think people who are artists see what's happening now. Yeah. So I, I studied the history of video and film. I took a course when I was living in Boston about video oh, and the rise of video in yeah. New York City. Oh, yes. And like more of what people do now on Instagram, like selfie videos. Yeah. Because that was happening in New York. People were making their own, their own self work. Yeah. work that was very creative. So I'm yeah. assuming that that was going on at this time. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, that was, an, that was a very, very vibrant video art scene in New York. The left coast tended to be a little bit more creative. Well, no, they, they were all incredibly creative. Yeah. But someone like John Sanborn, who lives in Berkeley now, whose wife is Sarah Cahill, the, the pianist and genius, was based in New York then and doing some extraordinary work. So there were a lot of people who were working in video art, like John, like Dara Birnbaum. When new technology was getting created, somebody would say, okay, could you play with this and tell us what we have? All the, you know, the people who were developing technology and technological tools would get video artists to make work just to see what the technology could do aesthetically. A lot of experimentation going was on then. Yeah. Francis Ford Coppola doing that on the side? Do you know? No, he didn't so much do video art, but what he did, and again, actually going back into the personal history, in the early 80s, Women in Film founded got founded and there was a chapter in San Francisco and somebody wrangled a weekend with Francis Ford Coppola at his ranch in Napa 
And that was when he was developing a lot of the ways that of figuring out the interface between feature filmmaking and video. He had started shooting his films simultaneously with 35mm camera and a video camera hmm. that he was, had in a, like a truck. That's, so, that's really cool. Yeah, so he was, you know, and I think people would get a little pissed off with him because he wasn't out there, you know, on the set. He was watching everything as it was happening on a video monitor. But the other thing he did, I, I mean, I remember going to his ranch in the early 80s and seeing he had this huge computer thing that read books and you could put a you know it was, it was humongous but you could put a book down on this thing and it would read the books and it would transcribe the dialogue from a novel into a script basically wow i mean wow and again this was like i'm being facetious but this is almost like you have to hand crank it you know <laughs> i mean yeah. now you you know there are all kinds of things that you could you could do similar probably with your iphone you know but this was the beginning of all that amazing work and all that amazing experimentation and you know what it's, it's really great to get this documented because i realize you know how much of that stuff really was happening in northern california in the san francisco bay area at everything from you know the sort of the francis ford coppola level to someone like rob nilson um and all the video artists who were doing just sort of amazing work and it really fed into that switch into digital cinema which happened I think things really sort of flipped the switch around the time that the King's Speech happened, which we showed for opening night at uh -huh. Mill Valley Film Festival. That's a great film. I want that to say 2008. Film. And really? that was when, boom, it things totally switched. suddenly switched. Yeah. Wow. Prior to this time, video and film did not mix. Film was film, and video was video. And never the two shall ever mix. Some filmmakers look down on video makers, and video artists did not want to be known as filmmakers. They were using video in a new and different way. It was video art. Wow. So you're saying, you're telling us that the Bay Area is responsible for this major switch in the film industry, which didn't happen in L.A., which didn't happen in New York. It feels like it was well, more cultivated no, here. I, I think it was being cultivated across the world. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think that any one person could really claim, you know, in the same way that, you know, we think that whoever invented radio in the United States is different from the person that we thought invented radio in the United Kingdom. There's a sort of, there's a simultaneous thing right. where everything sort of bubbles up at the, same time, at the same, same time, time. Right. yeah, right. The thing that really made a difference when, in terms of flipping the switch, was when the big studios in LA actually agreed to talk to each other and start to figure out how to change the infrastructure in movie theaters across the United States because everybody in movie theaters had 35 millimeter projectors, right? Yeah, and right. that technology had not changed in a hundred years. You know, I mean, basically, 35 millimeter, you could take something, would have decayed, but you could take a film from 100 years ago and you could play it in a movie theater. But then that meant that the whole infrastructure of the studios had to change because somebody had to pay for new projectors. 
that was extremely expensive. Wow. That's right. Because everything was done on film. I mean, I worked in advertising for... That's right. A handful of years. And so we used to take the... We used to shoot in film and then transfer and spend tons of money transferring. To video. To video. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot that that division was so... Yeah. So tough. So you would have transferred to video and you would have shot on film because the quality of it was so, so much, much better. better yeah until like the red camera came out right and then yes, that's that, right and then that changed everything then suddenly yeah. you could shoot on video as if it was filmed because the red camera made it all look gorgeous yeah mm, the yeah. red yeah because yeah. 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 i remember people talking about them being excited about it and i was you know the red camera was the first digital large format camera to photograph in 4K, which emulates the look of film, only it's digital video. And the red camera, it came out in 2005 and totally changed what cinema is now. I'm a little bit older, so I was on the crest on, of not being in the know about all that stuff Right, anymore. right, 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 right. Yeah. You know, the other thing I think, again, that, that is sort of rooted in the Bay Area that has to do with this shift is, of course, technology. Right. You know, I mean, one of the things that I found when I was curating the Video Fest is that I noticed that there were a lot more women working in video at that time that we would show at Mill Valley Film Festival than we were getting women filmmakers. And just noticed that. So at that point in the 80s, a lot of women were working in video. Max Almy, Chris Robbins, Dara Birnbaum. You know, there are a lot of these significant video artists. And then I noticed that things started changing. And what, ha- what started changing has to do with Silicon Valley and technology. And the technologists started realizing that there was a lot of money to be made in all this stuff. And then it became like a boys club. Hmm. Which wow. It kind of still is. It kind of still is. Just kind of. Just wow. a little bit. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So with the the Mill Valley Film Festival now is humongous and on the map, more than on the map. It's in, in it's an international film festival. Yeah. But when it first started, can you t- talk to us a little bit about how when it first started and then how it graduated into where it is now? Yeah. It's first, you know, I mean, again... Rooted in the Bay Area. The Bay Area was a place where Coppola, Lucas, Phil Kaufman, and then a lot of very cool avant-garde filmmakers who were all working at the San Francisco Art Institute were working. So there was a real spectrum of innovators in film who were based in the San Francisco Bay Area. So particularly George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola, who had decided to make this their home because they weren't getting what they needed as visionary filmmakers from, you know, in Los Angeles and in Hollywood. So they moved up here so that that tradition had become rooted in Northern California. A lot more history with it, of course, but, you know, that was really what was happening. So the first festival really was like a San Francisco Bay Area film festival. There were a couple of international titles, but it was very much a celebration of what was happening here. And then gradually things started to change. In the early 90s, I started, I moved over from video into being the the director of film programming. So I started taking on, you know, the whole spectrum. And around that same time, 
a lot of the independent distribution companies like Miramax, like Fineline, were evolving. And they were realizing that one of the things that they really wanted were Oscars. You know, I mean, it's, right? Right. So, um, of course. The ultimate the, price. Yeah. Yeah. So in the early 90s, they started working with the Mill Valley Film Festival because the San Francisco Bay Area has the third largest number of Oscar, you know, Academy members in the country, right? And we also oh, I didn't have, know that. Yeah, one of the most vibrant markets for independent and international films. So here was Mill Valley in the fall. They started working with us. And in the early 90s, we started, you know, showing films that ultimately went on to win Oscars. And that became, a th you'll find that from that time onwards, a lot of other film festivals started springing up mm. in the fall. And it turned into something that initially had been us and a couple of other people into being a circuit. I remember Laura, Laura Dern was at the festival a couple of years ago and she said, yeah, when I first came to the Mill Valley Film Festival, I did a lot of press, did a lot of this, that and the other, but it was pretty much the only festival that I went to. Now she said, it's a circuit. I've got this one today. I've got another one tomorrow. I've got another one the day after. So it's, it became a whole different film festival circuit that evolved from the early 90s onwards. Wow. That's so cool. I, I absolutely love coming to the Mill Valley Film Festival. And I love the Q&R, Q&As at the end. Mm. And it's just, it's glorious. It's a great film festival. That's very sweet of you. Yes, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's great. Do you, so curating, now all these years have passed, curating it, do, is it, is it, how do you know when you see something that you really think that, that you would like to have in the festival? You know, when I, when I moved over into doing the film programming, Sheila Benson, who lives now in the Pacific Northwest, and at that point was the film critic for the LA Times, but had started her work as a film critic for the Pacific Sun in Mill Valley. She said to me, you know, Zoe, one of the things that I learned from one of my mentors was that if a film isn't working in the first 11 minutes, it's never going to work. And that observation made me start observing myself when I would watch films. And, you know, of course, you know, being the manic kind of geeky person I am, I started testing myself, you know, if, okay, I don't think this is working. Is it working? Is it not working? You know, and then I would, you know, go through the film and see, no, nah, she's right. If, it, if it's not working at the beginning, it's probably not going to work by the end. So I started doing other, you know, finding other ways of looking at films. I would start noticing whether I wanted to be in the company, you know, like when a film starts, you get a, it's like meeting someone for the first time. You get a sense of whether you want to be in the company of that person for the next 90 minutes in a dark room with a group of strangers, you know. <laughs> so I would start asking myself that because it's a very abstract thing in a way, but, you know, you get a sense from the very beginning of a film of who you're in the company of, you know, what their sensibility is, what their craft is, all that great stuff. And then I would start looking for what the truth is in the, in the storytelling. And I think one of the other things that I've discovered in doing film curation is that if a film doesn't know 
the sort of the heart, the big truth of what it's about when it begins, it will, you'll never be able to bring the story to a conclusion. It makes total sense. Doesn't it? It does make total sense. Yeah. And then I started looking at things like, well, why have we never been able to sort of, why, why could we not conclude the Iraq war? Is it because we didn't begin it with a sense of truth? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Same with Afghanistan. Why, you know... We did not go in honestly mm. into those things. Right, so we and didn't so have any, we had no, no conclusion. Yeah. And then, yeah. of course, the other thing that's really important when you watch a film is, whether, you know, how you see yourself in it. Right, exactly. You know, whether it's a reflection of me as female, English, a certain age, whatever I am, or of you, if you see someone who's like you, you immediately connect. And sometimes just because you have a resonance with an empathy with someone, you connect. So... Those are the things that have made a difference to me as I watch movies. Wow. So one of my favorite things about the Bay Area, because I'm also not from here. Oh, where are you from? I'm from Colorado. Oh, I was okay. born in oh, California, okay. but okay. I moved around, landed in Colorado, kind of grew up there yeah. and have now come back here. And I think what is most alluring and what we've been learning from this podcast, talking to yeah. all these wonderful people who yeah. ended up in the Bay Area, is the community here mm. that you come and you visit like you said you right. did yeah yeah and then you're like oh man these are my people these are the people that i want to be surrounded by this is the place that gives me you us space mm. to be creative and gives us the reflection of what we're doing in a positive sense of like oh well i can i can come here and i can cultivate creativity and then share it with the world yeah. and everyone is very open and encouraging yes. and could you could you talk about how you feel about the about that yeah i think you're absolutely right and i i, I mean in some ways i'm not really sure whether it's an american thing or or a bay area thing i have a feeling it's a lot of it is a bay area thing that there is an i mean there's an openness to ideas there's a there are there's a connectedness between a lot of different communities. I mean, this is really a multicultural community. And honestly, that is something I've always sought out as an adult. But I think the biggest thing is really the openness to ideas. And if I had done half the things that I've done here in England, people would have been saying, well, you know, what right do you have? You know, what does your father do? You know, things like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, continue yeah. the lineage and yeah. do the thing that you're yeah. doing with your family. And yeah, I mean, everybody I, does the same stuff. Yeah, I mean, I remember my mum saying when I was a kid, when you go out on interviews, quite often what what may happen is that they will maybe take you out for lunch, but they will make sure that there's something that has peas on the menu, and if you put the peas onto the back of your onto, you know, if you scoop them onto can't even remember which is the right way to do it in England now, but there's a right way and a wrong way to eat your peas yeah, in you England. Yeah, you can't scoop them you can't like scoop a spoon. Them. Yeah, you have no. to skewer However them with a fork. However practical that might be. Yeah. yeah, you skewer them. Yeah, and if you do it the wrong way, you won't get the job. And, you know, I mean, there are so many, there are so many cultural signals that we have in all of our cultures, but I, but I do feel that here the signals are maybe there but the openness to ideas is huge here. I mean, it's, it's incredible. I mean, nobody ever said to me, oh, no, you can't do a theater piece in, a, in your loft south of market. You know, I mean, of course you can do that. You know, nobody said to me, 
oh, you can't do a site-specific piece on a field on Tamil Pius High School campus with the Bay Area playwrights. Of course you can do that. Yeah. You know? Yes, of course. All of those yeah. things. It's like there, there's, always, there's an incredible openness to that. So, yeah. Can you describe the film community here? Because I know it's not the same as the film community in Los Angeles, but we have a, a, a vibrant film community here. We do. I mean, one of the things that the Bay Area is, has been known for for a really long time is an incredible documentary film community. I mean, it's, you know, that has been so for many, many years and definitely continues to be community. Talk about the film yeah. community in the Bay so, Area. So, yeah. So, as well as... You know, an incredible group of documentary filmmakers. There are people who are emerging filmmakers. There's been, you know, there have been a lot of like real grassroots organizing with young filmmakers. And it goes all the way through to, you know, like the big guys who are at Pixar and ILM and all that kind of thing. So when you think about the film community here, it goes from everybody who's making, you know, short, cool grassroots work through documentarians who are telling it like it is to people who are working at Pixar and ILM, Industrial Light and Magic. Pixar is Pixar Animation Studios based in Emeryville, California, a small town in between Oakland and Berkeley, and is now part of Walt Disney Studios. They are the genius behind Toy Toy Story and so many other creative animated movies. ILM is short for Industrial Light and Magic, George Lucas's company. So a lot of people, which again, is Star Wars for people who don't. Yeah. Know. So yeah. So Star <laughs> yeah. Wars. So the, yeah. So going again, going back, there was Star Wars, and then George Lucas started Skywalker Ranch, which is in Marin County, just very close to where the Mill Valley Film Festival is. Skywalker Ranch is still there. Out of that came. Uh, Skywalker sound. So when you see a movie, quite often the sound recording will have been done in Marin County. And of course, a lot of special effects were developed for George Lucas's films. So George Lucas started with American Graffiti made a bunch of money. That was filmed in San Rafael and Santa Rosa. And then Star Wars came along. And he, with that, started imagining things that had not been done before technologically. And so a lot of the technology that creates the special effects that we completely take for granted now came out of that imagining, really. And there was a spin-off organization from Lucas, which ultimately became Pixar. So it's been like a very fertile ground for the evolution of that part of the film industry, too. Wow. Yeah, so cool. That's Creativity so cool. Yeah. and openness to new yeah, ideas. And technology right? as well. Technology. And technology yeah. all coming yeah. together at one to make a whole new thing. Right? Yeah, the, a whole new world. The tech a whole world. And here we are in the 21st century. Yeah. And here we are yeah. in the 21st yeah. century. Yeah. yeah. Can I ask you what it was like when you first started? The, what were the big, you said documentary filmmaking in was, the Bay Area? was big in the Bay Area. You said in the, the 80s, 70s, yeah. 80s? When you're- there were a bunch of really interesting filmmakers who were at the San Francisco Art Institute. People like James Broughton, who was a writer and a filmmaker, doing much more experimental work. I feel like there's been kind of a demise in experimental work over the years. There are people who still make experimental work, but it doesn't have the same kind of traction. I, I wonder if it has 
to do with the relationship of, you know, TikTok and YouTube and, you <laughs> know, it's a direct itself. relation, yeah, direct <laughs> relationship to, to that, you yeah. know, it's just become very different. Yeah, there were, there was a lot of that going on in the Bay Area. I'm trying to think if there were other things. I mean, there were independent feature makers. Most of the feature length work was, was in documentary at that point. So yeah, I mean, it's like the footprint, I think, has evolved in the Bay Area, but it's come from that place and the sensibility of the Bay Area, I think, pervades whatever mm. whatever has happened since. Now, you spoke about creativity, avant-garde, experimental, and the art, San Francisco Art Institute. Yeah. Can you speak a little bit more about the Art Institute and, and film and how that's played a part in this Bay Area? Yeah, actually, you know, where that kind of takes me to is what I was doing at that point, because I found I was, I had a parallel career doing both the video fest curation, but also writing and directing theater. And I think that there was a direct relationship between what was happening in video and video art and what was happening in the theater scene in the Bay Area in the 80s and early 90s. There was a lot of, there was, again, a lot of of experimentation with work that was essentially visual. And I come from a pretty straight theatre background, but people in straight theatre thought that my work was performance art, and people in performance art thought my work was theatre because it had a narrative sensibility and it was, it was experimental, but it had that kind of sensibility. I think that there was a real sort of heyday for those kinds of works, both in performance and theatre and the intersection of performance and theater and video that was really happening in the Bay Area at that time. I was talking with some friends the other day about George Coates's performance works. Things like that were really upping the ante. Um, and the folks at Life on the Water, Ellen Sebastian, Ellen Sebastian Chang and Bill Talon and Leonard Pitt were doing extraordinary work there. I mean, they were be great people for you to connect with because there's a really interesting history and I think there was a lot of cross-pollination between film and video and performance works at that time. Yeah, yeah it's cool. very, very cool. Tell us a little bit about you, your initiative with Mind the Gap because I was there the, that first oh, year right. when you did it. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Mind the Gap kind of started because I always had a commitment to showing work by women, showing work by people of color. In the 90s particularly and early 2000s, I did a lot of work with filmmakers from the continent of Africa, brought a lot of people over from many different countries there. But I always had an eye out to make sure that women's voices were getting heard. Um, and then in, I guess it was 2013, we did a panel with Stacey Smith from USC there's an initiative that they have there that where they put money into research into Hollywood. And, and she's done a lot of work on women and Hollywood. And she's one of the foremost researchers in that area. So on this panel, she said that about 7% of directors in Hollywood were women. 7%. That means 93% of hires are men. And of course, if you start to so think of women low. of color, it's even, you know, oh. it gets... You, you know, probably zero point zero point 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 what 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 you know. So the light bulbs went off for me because I'd done a panel years before about 
parts for women, roles for women in films. And I'd done a little bit of pre-Google research on what the numbers were like. And I, I just had this memory of the percentage of women directors in Hollywood being around the same like 20 years earlier. And I thought, here I am in my little gilded cage thinking, oh yeah, we show women, we show people of color, we show blah, blah, blah. And realizing that it wasn't really making any difference. So we started Mind the Gap in 2015. We began tracking the number of women uh, directors that we were showing at Mill Valley Film Festival. We started tracking the number of producers, writers, cinematographers, editors, you know, the primary creatives. And we committed to getting to 50% women directors at Mill Valley Film Festival by 2020. We thought 2020 was going to be a big deal. and <laughs> It was all this kind of stuff. We got to that. We got beyond that. We got to like 57% last wow. year. Wow. Um, yeah. That's great. And I think this year we're at about 55%. That's great. So this is across this is across shorts, documentaries, family films, feature films, international titles, US titles, across the whole spectrum. So we just we want to try and maintain that, but we also want to kind of look at, you know, what it takes for uh, you know, for women to get work. Period what it means when they do get work, how do you get people below the line in all the roles in creating a film to get work if they're women, and how does that impact storytelling and the way that we see stories? Now, other statistics will tell you that when you do get a female forward story, it does really well at the box office. So there's no financial reason why Hollywood should not step up. You know, one of the things that I started doing a couple of years ago was we started a summit for Mind the Gap. So as well as showing films, we would have a one day summit. Well, that obviously didn't happen in real life last year, but we switched it on to an online program. And in doing it online in 2020, which was a year, obviously, when we were all very, very aware of the impact of Black Lives Matter, of the impact, of the importance of intersectionality, of being able to see people, see each other, you know, in every single way. We started shifting a little bit. We did a panel on black women on screen. This year, we're doing one on Latinas on screen. We started doing a the Mind the Gap Directors Forum about three years ago. And there was a conscious choice not to call it the Mind the Gap Women Directors Forum, because we want the word director to become synonymous with, you know, I mean, what do you imagine when you see a director? You know, is it a white guy in a, in a baseball cap? Or do you see Susan Brown? You know, that kind of thing. So we just, we're, we just locked the, the director's forum. God, it's so hard now because everybody's working like crazy. But we have a great group of women who are on the director's forum this year. Nana Mensah, Maggie Gyllenhaal, Halle Berry, and Rebecca Hall. Wow. And all of them, wow. interestingly, are women who've gone from acting into directing so this is a really, really interesting year for that. You know, I mean, the, the, the first feature for all of them, and they've all come from acting. And I think a lot of it has to do with empowerment. You know, you've got to, you've got to grab your own voice. You've got to get your voice, you know, both behind the camera and in front of the camera. So we're going to be pre-recording that, and that will be available online, you know, during the festival and afterwards. 
So I feel like the other thing with Mind the Gap is that we're able to start really building these resources, you know, of, of hopefully an archive of directors from the Directors Forum, of people of looking at what will, I hope, ultimately be an anthology of black women on screen, Latinas on screen. Maybe next year we'll do Asian Americans on screen and indigenous people on screen, you know, so that we start looking at how we see each other and we create an anthology around that. And then the other thing we did this year, thanks to Farida Baramosi, who's working with us, is we got somebody to, to fund a $10,000 prize, a creation prize, a Mind the Gap creation prize, which we curated from films that are showing at Mill Valley this year. This hasn't been announced yet, but I'm going to tell you, it is Nana Mensa, who you might recently see, have seen on Netflix in The Chair. Yes. Oh, right? yeah. I've, yeah. I've been watching The Chair. Yeah, yeah that was great. Uh, so she has made her first film. And the intention with this grant, essentially, is just to give her some time when she doesn't have to think about anything other than writing, creating, directing, or mm. maybe being a mum because she's just had a baby, apparently. That kind of thing. It's just trying to sort of give people space to be able to do the work that they were put on the planet to do. Yeah, so great. that's so great. So Zoe, I adore you. <laughs> well, adore me and my team. You know, these <laughs> things team. don't happen in isolation. Well, and part of it is how eloquently you speak about everything. I'm. I've just been over here. I'm supposed to be taking photos, but I'm just kind of <laughs> just listening to you. It's been. You've been so captivating. I'm fully encapsulated in everything that is Mind the Gap and, and you right now. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you all. It's been yeah. an honor. Great thing. Zoe, thank you so much. Thank you, Susan. Yeah. <laughs> so great to see you all. Beyond the Fog Radio is created by us, as well as Connor Chang, Tim Johnson, Tim O'Shea, and Arliss Hayes. Beyond the Fog Radio, all rights reserved, 2022.